You're listening to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the ABMA journals. In this episode, we chat about synovial sepsis, diagnostics, and antimicrobial resistance, a One Health perspective with our guests, Heidi Riesink and Garrett Pearson. Welcome to Veterinary Vertex. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Sarah Wright. Today, we have my good friends and colleagues, Heidi and Garrett, joining us. Heidi and Garrett, I know you're super busy in the clinic and research and summer life in Ithaca, which nobody wants to miss a second of. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you so much, Sarah and Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Heidi, your current in One Health manuscript in JAVMA discusses synovial sepsis, diagnostics, and antimicrobial resistance. Can you give our listeners a bit of background on synovial sepsis? Absolutely. So synovial sepsis uh, refers to infection of a synovial structure, which often means a joint uh, like our knee, uh, but also could involve some other synovial structures that are the fluid-filled sacs or structures that surround tendons and ligaments. Uh, and similar to infections in other areas, um, this is often caused by a bacterial pathogen, but occasionally or rarely fungal organisms as well. Synovial sepsis, however, is particularly challenging uh, to treat and can have devastating consequences for a few reasons. One of those being the difficulty in identifying the organism, which is one of the topics um, that our, our paper investigates. Another one is, is just the fact that some of these organisms, particularly aggressive organisms, can do irreversible damage to cartilage, which has a poor intrinsic capability for self-repair. And that can lead to um, progressive cartilage injury, bone disease, uh, and severe osteoarthritis. And in both uh, veterinary patients as well as human patients, uh, in some cases, that can be even life-threatening. A pretty important topic then that we're discussing today. So thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. Garrett, what opportunities does this topic present for physicians and veterinarians to collaborate? Yeah, so when preparing the um, the article for JAFMA, uh, the area that I found to be the most lacking, I guess, is just the ability for us to share information. Um, so reporting platforms, Forms, things like that just aren't that available, especially to share information between the two fields. Um, like you you can read in the, the manuscript, the, a lot more kind of going on in Europe than there is here in North America in terms of sharing antimicrobial resistance information, but um, really just, and we're, we're missing an open communication platform to learn from the research that everybody is doing across the two fields. That's certainly true. You know, like we all cringe when we think something's coming in with a septic structure or a septic bone after surgery. And it doesn't matter if you're a veterinarian or a human physician, uh, we all cringe. And Heidi, as you said earlier, you know, a lot of times this can be life-threatening. And if not, it can certainly be career-ending and super expensive uh, for our, our clients as well. So what, what sparked your research interest in synovial sepsis, given all the cringeworthy side of it? That's a great question, Lisa. And so um, basically, you and I, I think, have collaborated historically on, on some cases. But I would say it's, it's our failures, honestly. Uh, I think that it's um, trying so hard on some of these cases. Uh, and despite state-of-the-art diagnostics, uh, very aggressive 
treatments and therapies and repeated efforts, uh, we in some cases still can't resolve the infection. Or even if we are able to resolve the infection, we've had so much damage that the quality of life for the animal or the patient um, really is is not up to standard or something that we're comfortable with. Um, and so I guess it's it's really frustrations with um, not being able to do better and some of our current outcomes that kind of motivated us to look into um, a few of the things that we focused on in this paper. Uh, and I would say that there's there's a multitude of factors that affect the prognosis for patients with synovial sepsis. Uh, many of those are outside of our control, including you know what organism happens to be inoculated and how aggressive is it? How much damage does it do? How easy it, is it to treat? You know, we can't change that. Uh, but I, I think of at least three kind of major modifiable factors that can affect the prognosis for patients with synovial sepsis. And that includes, you know, basically the delay in time to presentation or diagnosis to either the, the referring, you know, the primary veterinarian or to the hospital. Um, that can be the inability to actually identify what pathogen is there. You know, we know that that there's infection, but we're not able to identify the bacteria using some of our traditional methods, which typically involve bacterial culture and sensitivity testing, which can take days. But in many cases, we actually are not able to culture an organism. Um, and that's particularly the case for synovial sepsis versus infections in other areas. So, I think that's one of the things that was really useful about, about this paper is to realize, you know, you know, after decades of research, where are we? And we're still, you know, less than 50% of the time are we able to actually accurately identify the organism. And that's really critical because that's the, the best and most efficient way to choose appropriate therapy and antimicrobials. And then that leads into kind of the, the final modifiable risk factor is, is really um, what is the antimicrobial resistance profile or multidrug resistance profile of these organisms? And that's a really top hot topic across both human and veterinary medicine, as we know, resistance to our armamentarium of commonly used antimicrobials is increasing. And so um, I just think that this paper basically, um, you know, one of the motivations was to look at where we are, how are we doing now based, you know, on what we knew two decades ago and where, what do we need to do to, to do better in the future? Well, I have you, uh, how would you, I'd like to you to advise our listeners on how they should store their synovial fluid sample before it gets to diagnostics. You and I and others have been preaching this forever, but we still see some, you, know, you talked, it's, it's really important to know what the organism is. So can you tell our listeners what the best and most optimal way is to store that sample to get it over to their diagnostic lab for culture. Absolutely. And, you know, the only caveat here is this is to the best of our knowledge at this point in time. But uh, there was a paper um, out of Belgium in 2010 that had uh, a controlled study that had looked at the ability to identify organisms in blood culture or enrichment media versus um, some of the other standard um basically specimen containers, whether those are red top tubes or other plastic containers or porticles. Um, and that study had reported a much higher success rate in blood culture vials. And so our hospital, and I think many others, have switched to prioritizing blood culture and enrichment broth uh, for synovial fluid, especially. And that is one of the things that we were really happy to see um, in our study that kind of that lab study from 2010, you know, putting some of those uh, recommendations into place had resulted in a higher rate of uh, bacterial culture. So that would be 
our recommendation is where possible, um, and always in a hospital environment, to submit those synovial fluid samples in blood culture enrichment media. And they can just be stored at room temperature, right? No, You don't have to have a fancy-dancy incubator. So for a practitioner that's out there in the field, if they take a sample, oftentimes what we see in the field is, people, and, and rightfully so, I'm not being critical, they take a sample for us and then start up the horse and antimicrobials and probably do an intraarticular injection of antimicrobials. But that sample at that time in the field could go in blood culture, correct? And doesn't need to be incubated. That's absolutely correct. Um, yep. And we prefer it not to be incubated or frozen. Today, the only thing that might arise is the time, you know, there's an, an intrinsic um, disadvantage in the field and that there's the, the delay right in between the sample shipping into the diagnostic laboratory. And so there are some factors there that might also play into differences in the likelihood of culture, but I think where possible, you know, get the sample to the lab as soon as possible and blood culture enrichment is, is definitely recommended. Excellent. Thank you. I just wanted to get that out there one more time. <laughs> uh, Garrett, I know you're the senior resident at Cornell. You don't need this manuscript for credentialing. You have several others under your belt already. You have a little baby poppy. <laughs> What in the world inspired you to take on this? these two manuscripts? You have a matching currents in One Health and AJVR with uh, Heidi. What inspired you to, well, Heidi's obviously inspiring, but what what, what motivated you to write these manuscripts? And, and, and maybe you can speak a little bit to students, residents, and interns and how to manage their time in order to get this done with all the else that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. I um, am not sure that I am the model for time management, as Dr. Resink might be able to um, attest to. But um, in terms of who inspired me or what inspired me, I think um, yourself and Dr. Resink were huge um, mentors for me, both in research and uh, here at Cordell on the surgery service. Uh, this My involvement in this project started about three years ago, actually, when I was um, doing a research year in Dr. Fortier's lab. <laughs> um, and Dr. Resink made a presentation to the surgery service about this really cool project she had um, with this kind of immaculate data set. And I think for, for people doing equine research to be involved in a study where you have kind of upwards of a thousand samples or an end of a thousand is relatively uncommon um, for a very, very pertinent and common disease process that we still struggle being successful treating and diagnosing accurately. Um, so for me, it just seemed like a fantastic opportunity to really uh, improve my own clinical practice as well as um, try to help the field advance and, and improve our ability to accurately diagnose synovial sepsis. And then kind of the happy accident that happened was that there was all of this antimicrobial resistance data along with that, that really kind of expanded what I even saw, what the, the project could be, and and really made the, the AJBR manuscript what it is. Um, the other amazing opportunity was the collaboration that this project um, took on in terms of working with the epidemiologists, the antimicrobial resistance people, everyone in the uh, diagnostics center that helped with this. It was just a, a really positive experience for me and a research environment that the majority of my career has been clinically based. And this kind of just opened my eyes to what research could be um, and how enjoyable it is. I just, in terms of the time management, man, that is always a struggle. Um, but uh, 
between myself and Dr. Resync, really what helped was firm <laughs> deadlines uh, with minimal flexibility and and really just um, pushing myself to keep up with everything. And uh, I think the the old Catholic guilt of not trying to let somebody down by not having the work done in a timely manner um, really helps me push through. But uh, Dr. Resync's Google Calendar is an inspiration. And I think clear organization is really the key to success in terms of time management. Time management is something that all veterinarians strive for. So don't worry, Garrett, you're not alone. <laughs> Heidi, you're a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Surgery, and you also have a PhD. How did your advanced training prepare you to write this manuscript? Yeah, it's a great question. So is um, I'd first just say that I think, honestly, Garrett's been a little tough on himself at the time management. Um, I think he did an excellent job and and really was balancing you know, he's in a full-time uh, large animal surgical residency uh, training program, just had a baby. And I think it's really an amazing accomplishment that he um, was able to, um, you know, complete these two manuscripts and pass uh, his boards all at the same time. So uh, it's very impressive. But going back to the the question about the ACVS, so as um, you had mentioned, the American College of Veterinary Surgery oversees the training and credentialing process for all large animal and small animal uh, veterinary surgeons. And uh, basically, I think it's really important that one of the requirements of the ACVS is that each uh, trainee does need to perform a research project, and that needs to be published in a peer-reviewed manuscript. Um, in Garrett's case, he's an overachiever. And so, you know, this particular manuscript wasn't necessary to fulfill that requirement. But uh, it was during, you know, it was during my training, and I similarly had excellent opportunities to collaborate on clinically focused and translational research projects. And I think that's really important, an important mission of the ACBS. And you know, I hope that um, remains in place for a while. And so, I I think in addition to that, um, being in, involved in clinically, you know, translatable research. Uh, also inspired me similar to what Garrett had mentioned in terms of the ability to um, analyze larger data sets. So I think that is one challenge in veterinary medicine is that, you know, we often don't necessarily have the number of patients or the caseload that some of our human colleagues might have access to just because of the volume of patients, you know, that are being treated in the U.S., and I was really fortunate during my PhD studies to be able to acquire some advanced training in epidemiology and statistics. And I discovered that I really liked data um, and I liked being able to base decisions rather than anecdotally, you know, or uh, from a handful of cases. Sometimes that's necessary. It's also important. But um, for some of these questions, I think being able to take a step back and, um, analyze things as objectively as possible, looking for sources of bias, confounders, I think is really valuable. And then as Garrett had also alluded to, I think one of the things the advanced training has um, taught me is that sometimes as you learn a little bit more, the more you realize that you don't know. And I think that's also really important for researchers and clinicians to be aware of your limitations. So I do love data, but we um, had this really amazing opportunity to work with colleagues at Cornell uh, you know, namely doctors Casey Kayser uh, and uh, a graduate student in her lab, uh, Riza Mosadeg, and they really contributed, as Garrett had mentioned, an interesting dimension that we never would have been able to bring to the study. They're experts 
uh, in veterinary antimicrobial resistance and assessment of multidrug resistance using some um, advanced epidemiology techniques and some AI modeling. And so I think that was really, really interesting for us. What we also realized is that although we were feeling great about this study having, you know, starting with over 1,000 samples, we also realized in the grand scheme of things that, you know, maybe that's pretty good, but we have a long ways to go to be able to, you know, to have a, in an ideal world, maybe we'd be working with 10,000 or 20,000 samples. And I think that's what Garrett had alluded to previously is the only way that we're really going to be able to do that is with some centralized um capturing of that data, right? It's not going to be one lab. It's, you know, is that a matter of taking all of the, the you know, the National Veterinary Diagnostic Labs or all of the major testing labs, collating that data um, and evaluating that, you know, repeatedly over time. And I think that could provide really useful insight, uh, not only for the veterinary community, but then, you know, even looking beyond that, is there a way to integrate that um, across both veterinary and human medicine? Congratulations, Garrett. That's awesome. Seriously, super huge accomplishment. So thank you. What is one piece of information the veterinarian should know before discussing synovial sepsis and antimicrobial resistance with the client? Yeah, what, what I took away from the work that we did was that the while our, our success rate for positive culture is not the best, as, as Dr. Riesink mentioned, less than 50%, um, it's still important to get the information because if if you follow the recommendations and how to best submit these samples, you can have an increased likelihood of getting an accurate diagnosis and then tailor your antimicrobial therapy to reduce the likelihood of developing resistance. So I, I think that's very important. And the other thing is that with a lot of these cases and a lot of veterinarians in general, I know we do it all the time, um, when you send clients home with a prescription of antimicrobials, uh, the importance of finishing that course. I know everyone says it all the time. Your doctor says it. Just take the, the antibiotics as we tell you to. Don't stop early. Don't continue on them if you have extra. Uh, but little things like that need to be communicated because it's just so important. Yeah, thank you, Garrett. I'm a guilty human patient. <laughs> like, I feel better. I don't need that drug in my body. <laughs> uh, so uh, do as you say, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as we start to wind down, uh, I've learned a lot from you guys, and thank you. I hope our listeners are uh, have taken home some nuggets as well on how to help with synovial sepsis. Uh, we had, like to ask a couple, a little bit more personal question. And Heidi, I know like you're super accomplished in research. You're an amazing clinician, an accomplished horsewoman. You clearly have grit, resilience, uh, whatever somebody wants to call it. Where do you think it came from? Thanks, Lisa. Well, sometimes I don't always feel that way, uh, admittedly, but uh, I did grow up on a family farm in Iowa. And I think there's something about um, growing up around livestock and horses and working with animals, um, honestly, that you see the ups and downs of, um, you know, the wins and losses, you know, whether that's treating a joint infection or um, having a difficult dystocia um, or difficult labor, um, losing animals, but then also you know, seeing successes of of being able to, um, you know, in the case of horses, you know, start with um, without much and be able to train and and compete and have success. So, um, I guess I would just say I think of the the aphorism, you know, if you're not failing, then you're not trying. Uh, and I think 
um, you know, probably the corollary to that in, in surgery is if you're not having complications, you're not doing enough surgery. Uh, but I think it's just being open and accepting the fact that we're not perfect. It's okay not to be as long as we're, you know, growing and trying to, um, improve. And so, you know, I, I think I I think this paper is inspiring to me um, and projects like this where it's great to report the successes and uh, maybe new procedures or new techniques that are going well. But I think it's just as important to acknowledge where we could do better. And so I think just having um, having that growth mentality to know that it's OK not to be perfect. It's better to identify our weaknesses um, because if we don't, we're not going to improve. And so, um, I would say that's, that's probably, uh, where some of my, uh, inspiration and, uh, resilience came from. Yeah. We certainly hear that a lot of people that grew up on a farm have it, that you just have to have it. <laughs> um, I think from mine and Gara's perspective, you're already pretty perfect, but so please don't improve that much more where the gap gets bigger between you and the rest of us. <laughs> It's so hard to keep up. <laughs> the feeling is mutual. <laughs> uh, Garrett, this one's for you. Um, we get a lot of really fun answers to this question. Uh, what is the oldest? You're not that old, so that's probably not a great question for you. But the oldest or the most interesting item either in your desk drawer or on your desk? So ironically, I'm actually sitting at your desk right now. Here at- <laughs> I thought so by the background. <laughs> <laughs> Looking around, I think there's a few things I could show on the screen. Um, but thinking about my desk um, down in the clinic, the again, there's not much that's old. I've only been here for two years. But uh, the most interesting thing, I think, or surprising if someone walked into the office would be children's uh, ibuprofen. <laughs> because as you can remember, I'm sure when you have a young child and you're here at the clinic often, sometimes they get sucked in with you. And sometimes they're teething and you just give them a little Advil to get through the colic workup. <laughs> I can share only because I'm thinking about it now about uh, sharing in our offices. But the most interesting or special item that I have on my desk right now is an intro with uh, that Garrett and I actually removed from a small colon of a horse with uh, uh, colic and abdominal discomfort um, in a surgical procedure. So um I just this just reminded me of that while while I hear Garrett talking. <laughs> yep. Back in the dark time when the orthopedic. Okay, I'll bring it close enough. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Wow. So this it's is beautiful. Yeah, this is the inner list that Garrett and I removed uh, from the small colon of a horse uh, a year or two back. Wow. Yeah. I'm like more small animals slash like zooquatic. So to me, that looks ginormous. <laughs> They get much bigger. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this is only the small colon, not the large colon. Wow. Wow. Amazing. But just thank you both for the wonderful discussion today and for sharing your manuscripts with Java and AJBR. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, you can read Heidi and Garrett's manuscripts on our journal's website and in print Javma. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. 